my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your host Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies, followed by a spooky seventh topic. I recently attended my first ever Dismember the Alamo. What's Dismember the Alamo? It's a horror movie marathon that the Alamo Draft House puts on. The one I attended showed five movies and was a ton of fun. I thought, why not cover all the movies from the marathon? Well, the ones I'm allowed to say I saw. I had already seen the secret Hush Hush movie anyway. This episode will cover Deadly Robots, Radioactive Kids, and Familiar Faces. It's unofficially sponsored by the Alamo Draft House. I saw all the movies for this episode there. I love their theaters. Now, jump on this school bus with me. Hopefully we don't drive through any radioactive gas. Number 1, Chopping Mall, 1986, directed by Jim Wernoski. A group of young people stay in a mall after hours to hang out. Security robots malfunction and start killing people. The robots are destroyed, and the nerdy couple are the only survivors. The security robots are the killers. Full disclosure, I had seen this movie once before the marathon. I know that the podcast is supposed to be new-to-me horror movies, but I feel like Chopping Mall should be included on this episode anyway. It's my podcast. I can include a movie I've already seen on it if I want to. Include a movie I've already seen on it if I want to. Include a movie I've already seen on it if I want to. You would include it too if it was up to you. In Chopping Mall, you have a group of horny youngins trapped in a mall with murderous robots. If that's not the premise for a great, dumb horror movie, I don't know what is. Chopping Mall was released about a month before another movie about a robot that changes after some lightning gets involved. That movie is Short Circuit. Is Chopping Mall better than Short Circuit? Definitely. Is it better than Short Circuit 2? Is any movie? Well, I mean, when I was younger I loved Short Circuit 2, but now that it's 2018, it's crazy to look back at that movie and see Fisher Stevens in brownface. Yeah. Short Circuit 2 is a movie that came out in 1988 that included brownface. Mistakes were made. I still love Fisher Stevens. He's great in Super Mario Brothers and Hackers. If you've never seen those movies, I highly recommend them. Personally, I'm enjoying this Fisher Stevens tangent, but this section is about Chopping Mall. Chopping Mall has all your tropey archetypes in its group of teens. The bro-ish jock, the nerds, the cool older people, and the normies. The broish jock character is one of the best in any horror movie I've ever seen. He's constantly chewing gum no matter what he's doing and has incredible mannerisms. It's a shame he's the first of the friend group to die because his character is comedy gold. Barbara Crampton is in this. When her name was shown on screen, a lot of the audience cheered. 
She's been in a bunch of other horror movies, including two that have been on past episodes of this podcast, Reanimator and Beyond the Gates, but I'm personally not filled with hype by her presence. I cheered quietly to myself when Dick Miller's name popped up. I forgot he was in Chopping Mall since he plays a janitor and is only on screen for all of two minutes before he's electrocuted by a robot. He's great for those two minutes. Given that this is a B-movie, it shouldn't be surprising that all the acting is incredibly hammy, but it totally works for comedy purposes. The director, Jim Wynorski, has quite the resume. He's directed over 75 films, including everything from family films to erotic ones. He's obviously a real quantity over quality kind of guy. The gore in this movie is fun. The best death by far is the out-of-nowhere head explosion that results from the robots shooting lasers at a girl. Everything up to that is pretty tame. All the gore is done practically, which I appreciate. This movie does have a revolver that never runs out of bullets, which is fun. The mall locks down completely at a certain time. Even if the kids weren't attacked by the robots, they still would have ended up locked in the mall all night, which kind of irked me. I know that most of them are idiots, but still. My favorite line from the movie is casually said by the nerd girl after she easily shoots a propane tank with a revolver. The gang is in awe of her sharpshooting and ask her how she learned to do that. She responds with, my dad's a marine. Whenever anyone asks how I'm able to do something in the future, I think I'll just respond with that line. Wow, Josh, amazing cookies. How'd you put them together? My dad's a marine. Chopping Mall is a fun time. It's a garbage B-movie that's completely self-aware. It's definitely worth checking out. Number 2, Dementia, 1955, directed by John Parker. A young woman wakes up in a motel. She leaves and a bunch of crazy events happen. She ends up going places with a rich guy. She kills the rich guy. She hides from the police. She's found. She wakes up. The hand of the rich guy is in a drawer in her hotel room. The young woman is the killer. Given the content of this movie, I thought it was released much earlier than 1955. The film has music and sound effects throughout, but there is no recorded dialogue. Dementia is presented in a way that is supposed to make you feel crazy. Things happen, but you don't know if what's happening is real or not. My interpretation of what happens is this. A young woman meets up with a dude who tells her to kill some fat cat. She kills the fat cat and evades the police. She's basically an assassin. Not a great one, though. If what we are shown is true, she kills the fat cat after going up to his penthouse suite. She stabs the man and he flails over the balcony. The butler of the man and the elevator operator know that she killed the rich man 100%. She doesn't wear a mask or anything, so they know she did it and know exactly what she looks like. I'm a fan of a lot of older movies. I enjoy the Universal Monster movies, the Hitchcock, William Castle, and Mario Bava movies I've seen. Dementia was released after some of these and around the same time as others, yet it is nowhere near as good as they are. I get that it's a very artistic film that's trying to capture insanity, but that doesn't make it an enjoyable watch. I was not invested in the plot at all. I don't know who this woman is. We're given clues that she's a killer who had a bad childhood due to an alcoholic father she had to kill after he killed her mom. By clues, I mean an out-of-place dream sequence that's cheesily thrown together. 
There's just nothing special about this movie. I wish this movie would have been replaced by something else during the marathon. I would have preferred some German expressionist silent film instead of Dementia. Dementia feels like a film that is inspired by German expressionism, but it doesn't capitalize on any of the uniqueness from that era. I am by far no expert on German expressionism, so here's my pledge to you, the listeners, to watch and cover The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari in the near future. Maybe if Dementia had come out 30 years earlier, I'd be more impressed by it. But given that it came out in 1955, all I see it as is a nonsensical art house film that failed to captivate me in any way. Definitely skip Dementia unless you are a huge fan of avant-garde jazz played over weak imagery. It's an incredibly forgettable film. Number 3, The Children, 1980, directed by Max Kalmanowicz. A bus that's taking kids home drives through a radioactive cloud. A sheriff finds the bus on the side of the road. It's empty. The kids start popping up. They start hugging people. You die if the kids are able to touch you for long enough. A bunch of people die. The sheriff and one of the kids' dads puts an end to the radioactive kids by cutting off their hands. One radioactive kid survived since only one of their hands was cut off. That kid kills the sheriff. The dad kills that kid. His pregnant wife had also driven through the radioactive cloud. She has the baby who's revealed to also be radioactive. The radioactive children are the killers. First off, I see this movie for what it really is. Anti-goth propaganda. The way you know a child is radioactive and evil is by looking at their fingernails. If they are black, don't let the little buggers near you. Out of all the movies I saw during the marathon, The Children is definitely my favorite. This movie is filled to the brim with hilarious nonsense. What kind of hilarious nonsense, you might be asking? How about the sheriff walking into two very strange backyard situations? The first time he goes looking for a kid's mom, he finds her lounging outside in her underwear next to her Doberman Pinscher Queenie. The next time he looks for another kid's parents, he stumbles upon the mom who's chilling topless out by her pool while her husband, a bodybuilder, continuously does curls with an oversized dumbbell. Pet warning, Queenie is found dead. Queenie's dead body falls out of a closet after the door is pulled open, and the sheriff, without missing a beat, shoots it multiple times. The sheriff's reactions are insane. Sure, the dog was already dead and not a threat in any way, but later in the movie, a radioactive kid pops out of nowhere, and the sheriff plants two beautiful shots in the kid's chest as soon as the little demon appears. The sheriff is by far the best character in the movie. He's hilarious. One of my favorite running gags with his character was his disappointment whenever he picked up a phone and found out the line was dead. It happens like three times. The sheriff is the one that figures out the radioactive kid's weakness. He figures out that bullets have no effect after shooting multiple kids with multiple bullets. So after one gets up close and personal, the sheriff grabs a katana that's conveniently mounted on the wall and cuts off the little bastard's hands. See, the kids are like zombies, but instead of destroying their brain, you have to cut off both of their hands to put them down. No, really. That's how they end up defeating the little devils. Throughout the entire film, they keep referring to a location as the Ghoul Place. I thought they were referring to the cemetery by this clever name, but it turns out one of the characters' last name is Gould. I'm still going to start calling cemeteries Ghoul Places. Speaking of the Goulds, 
The aforementioned mom who was outside in her underwear with her dog is Dr. Joyce Gould. She's a real ray of sunshine. Whenever she's on screen, she's being mean to someone. Well, to everyone but her now radioactive son, might be stepson, Tommy, whom she welcomes with open arms. Unfortunately for her, Tommy is the one person she should have been standoffish towards. She melts pretty early on in the movie and is replaced by another kid's dad, John. John is similar to Joyce. They are both jerks. John yells at his wife throughout the movie. The sheriff and John don't tell her what's really going on, so when her daughter shows up all radioactive, John yells at her for not knowing what's going on, even though it's his fault she doesn't know. Unfortunately, John the douchebag lives and the sheriff dies. R.I.P. Sheriff, you made the children the hilariously great movie it is. Full disclosure, the children drags in places, but given all the zaniness packed into this movie, the minor pacing issues can be forgiven. If you are looking for an old horror movie with great comedic elements, check out The Children. The acting is hamtastic, and the melted bodies look delightfully dumb. Number 4, The Raven, 1935, directed by Lou Landers. Dr. Richard Vollen, a man who has an unhealthy obsession with Edgar Allan Poe and torture, saves a woman's life. She's engaged. Dr. Vollen wants her to be his. Her dad tells him to back off. A fugitive named Edmund Bateman shows up at Dr. Volan's place. Bateman wants Volan to change his face. Volan makes Bateman look like a monster. Volan says he'll fix Bateman's face if he helps him. Volan invites a bunch of people over, including the girl he saved, her fiancé, and her father. With Bateman's help, he captures the father and restrains him to a table with a pendulum above it, which Volan modeled after Poe's The Pendulum and the Pit. The daughter and her fiancé are also captured and put in a room that's walls crush whoever is inside. Bateman has a change of heart and helps the couple get out of the room. Volan shoots him, but Bateman is still able to get Volan into the crushing room before dying himself. The father is saved, Bateman dies, and Volan is crushed. Dr. Volan and Bateman are the killers. Bateman is a murderer on the run and Volan kills Bateman after he turns over a new leaf. The Raven stars Bela Lugosi as Volan and Boris Karloff as Bateman. Almost every line of dialogue in this movie is hilarious. Everyone's delivery is incredibly blunt and ridiculous. There's an amazing back and forth between Volan and the father of the girl he's into that happens when the father has been strapped to the table with the pendulum above it. The father looks up at the pendulum and asks, What's that? Volan responds, A knife. Then the father asks, What's it doing? And Volan says, Descending. It's hysterical. While the father is strapped to the table with the knife pendulum descending slowly towards him, we get multiple shots of his predicament which show him warily looking at the sharp swinging object while pathetically moaning about the situation. It sounds like this. Uh, uh. And it's probably my favorite thing in the movie. I already somewhat touched on the performances, but to be clear, the acting is old Universal Monster Movies camp. I found this to be a good thing. The plot of the movie isn't going to keep you entertained throughout without the last that the acting brings. 
Besides the Volan and father conversation regarding the pendulum, you also have another great back and forth about the father not wanting Volan to date his daughter, and a philosophical discussion between Volan and Bateman regarding whether or not being super ugly makes you do ugly things. During the discussion about ugliness, Volan tells Bateman how ugly he is multiple times. It's great. Gore-wise, this is a universal monster movie, so there isn't really any. Bateman is shot, but you don't see any blood or anything. Volan is crushed in the OG trash compactor crushing room off screen. Unfortunately, no one ends up being cut in half by the pendulum, which is surprising given the fact that after Volan is taken out of the picture, a group of people go to free the father character, and none of them actively try to avoid the swinging death machine. One of the rescuers definitely should have gotten at least a light scratch from the blade. When this movie was being announced during the marathon, we were told we were going to be watching a movie with Bea Lugosi in honor of his birthday. I thought they were going to play Dracula, which would have been a bummer for me since I watched that episode to go. I'd say The Raven is way more entertaining than Dracula. It's a lot funnier too. I don't think it's trying to be funny, well, at least not throughout, but it's 100% a comedy in this day and age. Give The Raven a watch. It didn't do so well in 1935, which led to a decline in horror movies and Bela Lugosi's career, but modern audiences should love it. Number 5, Halloween 2018, directed by David Gordon Green. Michael Myers escapes during transport to a new facility. He begins murdering people. Laurie Strode has been preparing for him to escape. A sheriff hits Michael with his cruiser. Michael's new doctor, Dr. Sartain, kills the sheriff, and it's revealed that the doctor helped Michael escape. Michael, obviously still alive, kills the doctor and ends up at Laurie Strode's fortified house where Laurie, her daughter, and granddaughter are. Her son-in-law was also there, but Michael kills him. After Michael enters the house, Laurie gets the upper hand and poorly hunts Michael. Michael switches back to the role of the hunter, gets tricked by Laurie's daughter who shoots him in the neck, falls into the basement of the house, and gets trapped down there as the whole house turns into a blazing inferno. The three women then leave the house and get a ride in a truck. Michael Myers and Dr. Sartain are the killers. Let me start off by saying I'm not a big fan of the Halloween series. I haven't seen all of them, but based on the ones I have seen, which are the original 6 and H2O, I don't really care for the series. I still have some fun with them, but I prefer all the other big name franchises. I also saw the Rob Zombie ones, which are fine. I know most people hate Mr. Zombie, but I find some of his work to be enjoyable. So as someone who's not a big Halloween fan, what did I think of Halloween 2018? Well, I quite enjoyed it. Before I go any further, I will say that I recommend Halloween for horror fans. It's incredibly entertaining even though there are a ton of dumb things in it. What dumb things you might be asking? Let's start off with the fact that Allison, Lori's granddaughter, awkwardly refers to Lori as grandmother throughout the movie. I get that Lori is her grandmother, but the way she says it is incredibly strange. This brings me to one of the biggest issues with the film, the dialogue. Holy hell is there a bunch of terrible dialogue. It's especially bad when the sheriff and doctor are talking to each other. Speaking of the doctor, why the hell is this character even in this movie? The movie is self-aware and literally calls him out as the new Loomis. Do we need a new Loomis? No. 
Do we need a twist where the new Loomis helped Michael escape and kills someone? God, no. It's really stupid. The sheriff runs Michael over with his cruiser. The doctor then says Michael is dead. The sheriff is going to shoot him to be sure, so the doctor kills the sheriff. At this point, we assume Michael is still alive, but we aren't sure. The doctor then puts on Michael's mask. It's hilarious. I saw this with Kat, and right after the doctor popped up wearing the mask, I looked at her and pointed at my eyes to silently say, Look at me. I'm Michael Myers now. Fortunately, Michael is still alive and kills the doctor, because the doctor taking over for Michael at the end would have been the worst idea ever. Laurie Strode has been preparing for this showdown for 40 years. Her house is fortified. Why the hell does her front door have two breakable windows on it? Why does Laurie stand against the door allowing Michael to punch through and grab her? Any other character would have died right there. The whole movie we are shown how stupidly strong Michael is, so when Laurie is able to tussle with him multiple times, it's kind of stupid. Not that I want Laurie to lose. There's a point in the movie where Michael is somewhere in the house. Laurie begins sweeping the house for Michael. Laurie has a bunch of guns. Which gun does she take with her during her close quarters sweep of the house? A repeating rifle, which is probably one of the worst weapons for the job. There are multiple times throughout her search where if Michael would have actually been in a room or a closet, he would have had the upper hand given the actions Lori takes. Despite some questionable actions from someone that spent 40 years training to take down a killer, I still love badass Jamie Lee Curtis in this. Some of her delivery is iffy, but the acting in this movie as a whole isn't incredible. It's just okay. JLC is the best part of the movie. Speaking of the acting, there is one of the most unbelievable child characters in the world in this who's a comic relief character. Allegedly, all of his lines were improv, but that doesn't make his delivery and what he says feel any more real. Normal kids that age aren't spouting off quips for days. He was so unbelievable that I was taken out of the film. I've seen a ton of people expressing love for the kid, but I don't get it. I'm cool with the level of comedy in Halloween, but that kid fell flat for me. Another random character is Allison's boyfriend. He's built up to be an actually decent dude, but there has to be some reason for Allison not to have her cell phone, so his character randomly turns into an asshole and throws Allison's phone into a goopy bowl of something that's sitting out at one of the most badass looking high school parties I've ever seen in a movie. Okay, okay. They made the boyfriend a dick for dumb plot reasons. At least his comeuppance will be worth it. Thing is, after this scene, we don't see or hear from the boyfriend again. He just disappears. The boyfriend has a Joker friend named Oscar, whom I immediately started calling Justin McElroy in my head. Oscar is walking Lori to their friend's house, and the writers decided that he needed to go in for the I'm such a nice guy forcible kiss. Ugh. Why? Why can't Oscar just be a chill dude? Why you gotta make the funny loser an asshole? You could have easily written another reason for him to lag behind. You can still have him profess his love for Allison to Michael Myers, which was funny. One last character to complain about is random cowboy hat guy. He's built up to do something, but ends up disappearing like the boyfriend. Who was he? What was his job? I'm assuming he was law enforcement, but he just vanishes. 
What the hell was up with the convoluted basement trap? I'm supposed to believe that Lori decided to rig a trap for a scenario where Michael gets trapped in the panic room basement? I mean, maybe that was just one of many crazy traps Lori had for different situations. I really loved when Lori's daughter, who Lori trained when she was younger, baits Michael to show himself by pretending to freak out, thus giving her a perfect shot at him, but why did she stop with the one shot? Why didn't she confirm the kill with multiple bullets? After the trap goes off, the Strodes don't even make sure that Michael is burned alive. I know. I know. There has to be room for a possible sequel. It just feels dumb that the Strodes don't fill Michael with lead instead of using the ridiculous basement trap. I've been complaining a lot about this movie, but honestly, it's a really fun time. It's my duty to point out the dumb things, but here's some great stuff. I already mentioned the dope, fake freakout from the daughter. Lori steals Michael's all fall over the balcony and disappear trick, which is awesome. There is an amazing tracking shot sequence where Michael kills a bunch of people. He doesn't kill a baby, which I found weird given that he's supposed to be absolute evil. He does kill a young boy in the beginning. I think he should have stabbed the baby, but it doesn't bother me that he didn't. The gore throughout the movie was mostly well done and practical. A lot of the kills are off screen, which I'd normally complain about, but I think the grisly body reveals are pretty awesome and help with the tone of the film. The brutality of the kills are on point. There is a bit of added CGI blood that I didn't love, but it's only a tiny amount. Michael is the stealthiest man alive, or everyone he kills keeps critically failing their perception checks. He kills a bunch of people in broad daylight and doesn't really try to be inconspicuous during his killing spree. One funny thing that I saw brought up online is the fact that to set up the closet scare that you've probably already seen in the trailer, Michael must have been chilling in that kid's closet for some time just waiting for the babysitter. That seemed a little out of character. I wonder what he was thinking about in there. Halloween 2018 is an entertaining, fun ride. I definitely recommend checking it out even though it has a lot of dumb stuff in it. It's a great time and the score is still fantastic. I went to see Halloween on Halloween and oh boy was the crowd the worst ever. Normally other audience members at the draft house aren't a bunch of annoying clowns. There were multiple people being overly shocked at anything that happened in the movie. You mean Michael Myers is going to kill people in this? Kind of shocked. There were so many that you couldn't point them all out to complain. People that overreact in theaters because they think they're important and should be heard while others are trying to watch a movie should be swarmed by spiders. More on that later. Number 6, Suspiria 2018, directed by Luca Guadagnino. An American girl named Susie goes to a prestigious dance academy in Germany in 1977. She impresses the lead choreographer, Madame Blanc, and is invited to join the school since there is an opening. A girl named Patricia bailed, saw her therapist, Dr. Klemper, and disappeared. The dance school is a coven of witches. They are supposed to worship Mater Suspiriorum, but are currently led by Helena Marcos, who was voted to be the leader and claims to be Mater Suspiriorum. Marcos needs a new body which is why Patricia disappeared, but Patricia's body didn't work out. Madame Blanc grooms Susie to be the new body. Blanc grows attached to Susie. A girl named Sarah figures everything out with the help of Dr. Klemperer. 
He can't save her though, so she gets captured. The Coven is going to perform the ritual to get Marcos her new Susie body, so they trick the doctor into arriving at the school and capture him because they need a witness. The ritual starts. Susie shows up. Marcos attempts to kill Blanc, and Susie reveals that she is the true reincarnation of Mater Suspiriorum. She has an entity that's credited as death go around the basement where the ritual is taking place and kill Marcos and all the witches that voted for her. The school then continues without Blanc, and Susie makes the doctor forget about all the girls he wasn't able to save, including his wife. Susie, aka Moderate Suspiriorum, Death, and RAF terrorists are the killers. Susie is technically the killer, since the other witches only put Patricia and Sarah in a state of undeath. They don't actually kill them. Yeah, during this whole thing, Suspiria heavily covers an RAF hijacking that took place in 1977. It's supposed to mirror the old versus the young struggle that is happening in the Dance Academy. The inclusion works, but it isn't necessary. Before I go any further, I want to state that I went into this movie with a completely open mind. I'm not on a crusade for the original, even though I do find the original movie to be fantastic. I am a big fan of Dario Argento's work. This remake story is pretty different from the originals, which I don't have any issues with. I'm about to go into full rant mode, so before that happens, I'd like to go over what I liked about Suspiria 2018. The cinematography is well crafted. Some of the soundtrack is actually not that bad. The performances overall are pretty strong. One third of the characters Tilda Swinton plays is acted superbly. I would say the strongest aspect of this remake is the modern dancing. The choreography is incredible, haunting, and gorgeous. The production design is amazing. There's a part in the movie where Susie does a dance that basically destroys another girl, which is really cool. Susie has dreams with some truly haunting imagery that I thought were interesting. I'm a fan of the act structure. The first two thirds of the movie set up the possibility for the movie to be great. But two thirds does not a movie make. Tilda Swinton is a great actor. I get that you'd want to take full advantage of her talents when you cast her in your movie. Thing is, it's incredibly stupid to have her play three characters as if she's Eddie Murphy in The Nutty Professor. I had seen an image that listed the doctor as one of her roles. I somewhat forgot about seeing that image before watching the movie, but the whole time during my viewing, whenever the doctor was on screen, all I could see was someone covered in a bunch of prosthetics pretending to be an old man. The makeup is not good enough for a main character. The performance is not good enough given that he's just supposed to be an old man. During the first scene with the doctor, Patricia is telling him how the witches have eyes everywhere. The doctor then talks to her with a woman's voice. I thought he was possessed by the witches and it was going to be revealed that this was the case somewhere throughout the movie. That doesn't happen. He's just supposed to be an old man. He's a symbol for the failure of the patriarchy. He's the only prominent man in the movie, so going with the heavy feminist vibes, it's interesting to have him played by a woman. The thing is, it does not work. I've read that some people were completely amazed that he wasn't actually a real man, 
And I just don't understand how you can't instantly realize that the character is someone with a prosthetic mask. People's faces are not that stiff. The doctor could have been completely removed from the movie. He serves no real purpose. I don't care what happens to him. I don't care about his missing wife. I don't care that Susie makes him forget everything. I feel that he is only included as a gimmick. Sure, there is some symbolism, but the inclusion of the doctor hurts the film way more than it helps, and the movie is already too long. Cutting the doctor would have definitely helped Suspiria feel less bloated and never-ending. What about the other characters Swinton plays? Besides Blanc and the doctor, Swinton also plays Helena Marcos. If this Suspiria remake was an independently made B-horror movie, I'd probably be praising the makeup effects used for Marcos. Thing is, this is supposed to be a serious art film. The makeup for Marcos looks absolutely dreadful. Marcos looks rubbery and fake. Like the doctor, all I could see was someone covered in bad makeup effects. Marcos looks like the Cenobite Butterball from the Hellraiser series, not in a good way. The character looks cheap and amateurish. Swinton's performance as Marcos is awful. You don't feel intimidated by this character, who is supposed to be the big, horrific reveal. Swinton's delivery comes off as comical at best. Both the Doctor and Marcos should have been played by different people. Having Swinton play three characters was a bold choice that did not pay off. Besides Marcos, the makeup effects for Patricia and Olga, the girl who is contorted by the dance, are also subpar. It's like makeup was done by someone who doesn't understand how human skin works. I enjoyed the Olga contortion scene, but I wish the makeup effects were done better. With Patricia, all you get is Chloe Grace Moretz and a shoddy looking skin suit that looks like it was found in an old 80s prop warehouse. Basically, the makeup effects in this movie would work for a low budget horror movie, but their usage in Suspiria took me out of the film and distracted me. I said the first two thirds of Suspiria were promising, so what happened? The climax was one of the most poorly executed sequences I have ever seen. Not only did the makeup effects for Marcos and Death look terrible, all the gore, which there was a ton of during the climax, besides the well-done disembowelment of Sarah, was done with terrible CGI. I had heard complaints about terrible CGI, which I thought were hogwash up until the head explosions. The CGI for the gory, bloody explosions is just plain awful. It's weird because great practical effects are used earlier in the movie when one of the witches starts stabbing herself in the neck to kill herself due to all the guilt of standing around while Marcos was ruining everything. Practical gore is also used during Olga's contortions and Sarah's leg break. Why they decided to skimp out on the practical effects during the climax of the film is beyond me. A red filter is used when Death starts blowing up heads, which makes it hard to see what's going on. I don't know if the filter was supposed to be an homage to the color of the original, but in the remake, the shots did not have enough contrast to make anything stand out. All you see is a mess of red instead of what's actually going on. The frame rate during the explosions and dancing is lowered, which makes everything look awful. It's mind-boggling to me that someone could expertly craft a majority of the film and then fumble so hard when it comes to the climax. 
I said I wasn't going to compare this remake to the original, but of all the things this movie could take from the original, the remake takes the part where Susie counts the footsteps to find the witch's hidden area. They have Sarah count the footsteps in the remake, but her counting them doesn't make any sense. She hears the older women talking through a wall. She doesn't hear them walking somewhere and count their footsteps to find out where they are. One thing I surprisingly haven't brought up yet is the part of the soundtrack where Tom York decided he should include himself singing. We start the movie off with him singing a song. It doesn't fit. It would be fine without him singing, but ego, I guess? You'd hope this is the last time he sings. Sorry, Charlie. Well, at least he's not going to sing during the climax of the movie, right? Right? Yeah, Tom York sings during the climax, which is the cherry on top for one of the worst climaxes I have ever seen in a film. The climax and Tilda Swinton pointlessly playing three characters ruined the Suspiria remake for me. It's a shame. Your actor was so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. The movie had a ton of potential. The dancing was perfect. It's funny that poor execution ended up being the downfall of the film, considering so much of the film was beautifully executed. Skip the remake and watch the original Suspiria instead. Number 7. The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina Chitchat I've seen a few episodes of Riverdale and found the levels of cheese somewhat fun, so I was excited to watch Satanic Witchy Riverdale. I'm going to start with the killers, so here come spoilers. Spoilers incoming. Madam Satan, Dorcas, Agatha, Sabrina, Old Age, and Zelda are the killers. Harvey kills his zombie brother, but his brother doesn't have a soul at that point. I believe that's all of them. There isn't a ton of death in this first season. Two of the killers, Sabrina and Zelda's victims, come back from the dead right away after they're killed. My favorite name in the entire series is Dorcas. It's not spelled like it sounds, but whenever they said the name, they said Dorcas. They said it once in the first episode, but didn't say it again for a long time, which made me think I misheard the name. But it is, in fact, Dorcas. Another name in this show is Batty Bat. Yeah, a demon pops up and their name is Batty Bat. It's really stupid. The whole episode with Batty Bat is dumb. The demon almost looks good and scary at first, but they get so much screen time during the episode that they start to look stupid. Everyone in this show is a big dumb idiot besides Zelda. Zelda is by far the best character and only person with a functioning brain. Well, Zelda and Prudence. Hilda gets better as the season progresses, but she's awful in the beginning. The season starts with Sabrina declining to sign the Book of the Beast, which is basically passing on making a deal with Satan for more powerful witch powers. Sabrina is an entitled brat. She does whatever she wants and doesn't feel like any rules should apply to her. When her dumb boyfriend Harvey's brother dies, she uses necromancy to resurrect the brother. She needs to trade a life for his, but tries to cheat death to keep everyone alive. You can't cheat death. There are rules. She's such an idiot. She's not likable. Her big reason for turning her back on her family and witch side is her love for Harvey. They're 16, have nothing in common, 
and Harvey has the brains and personality of a pet rock. There is nothing likable about him. Also, his last name is Kinkle. Everything about Harvey sucks. After Sabrina refuses to sign the book, Satan is pretty peeved about it. It's implied that he wants to kill her. While this is going on, Sabrina's normie friends cry about injustice at their high school. The things they are complaining about suck, but their problems pale in comparison to Sabrina's. I don't care that some books are unjustly banned at your school right now. Satan is literally trying to murder Sabrina. During the first episode, one of the most horrifying things I've ever seen happens. The principal at Sabrina's normie school is a douchebag. He's afraid of spiders like most sane people are. Sabrina does a spell that makes the entire spider population in her town storm the principal's house and crawl all over and inside him. Somehow the principal is still able to function as a normal human being after this event. I would prefer to be brutally murdered than to have this spider invasion happen to me. I've seen lots of stuff, but the idea of spiders swarming someone like they do in Sabrina is absolutely terrifying. If that actually happened to someone, they'd definitely be insane afterwards. The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina does have some neat dark imagery. The goat Satan monster is pretty cool. It's a little cheese ball that everything has to be the dark version of things. I don't have a great example of what I mean off the top of my head besides how Sabrina's book signing ceremony is referred to as her dark baptism. During an episode early on in the season, we're told that astral projecting is stupid dangerous and should never be done. So everyone just starts astral projecting all willy-nilly the rest of the season. It doesn't make any sense. The biggest issue I had with the chilling adventures of Sabrina is the terrible decision to have things out of focus as a stylistic choice. Some shots are so blurry that you don't even know what's going on. I have no idea why someone thought making shots look awful on purpose was a good idea. The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina is an enjoyable cheese fest with a bunch of dumb characters and an all over the place plot. It's enjoyable in the sense that it's so bad it's good. I've heard people say the show is actually good and that it's just really campy, but it's not self-aware about the campiness at all. It's bad, but entertaining. The season ends with Sabrina citing the Book of the Beast and going full witch, so I have high hopes for the next season. Oh, and the town this takes place in is called Greendale, so every time someone said Greendale, all I could think about was the dean and community saying, Greendale! Episode 31 has come to an end. I hope all of you had a great and spooky October this year. I feel like the beginning of November is a sad time for horror fans because we just want it to be Halloween again already. If you like this episode, give it a rating on iTunes, tell your grandma to listen to it, and or hit me up on Instagram using the hashtag BlankIsTheKiller. As always, thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast on their website, allowing it to materialize on all your favorite podcast apps. Looks like I'm going to cover the cabinet of Dr. Caligari next episode, so anticipate that. That episode will be out on November 18th. Since this episode was unofficially sponsored by the Alamo Drafthouse, I thought I'd let all of you know that the best Thanksgiving slasher of all time, Blood Rage, is playing at the South Lamar Alamo Drafthouse here in Austin on Tuesday, November 20th 
at 9.30 p.m. I bought some extra tickets, so if you want to come with for free, post a picture on Instagram from your favorite movie that I've talked about on the podcast with the blink is the killer hashtag, and you could win some tickets. Till next time, remember, anything can happen on Halloween.